Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, how's it going? This is Matt here from Silver Fortune. So this morning, uh, Tuesday morning, I'd actually recorded a new episode for, for this channel, for this podcast. And shortly after I, I finished it up and I was going to upload it and everything, news came out from the White House that the U.S. is going to be postponing the implementation of, of part of these tariffs that Donald Trump had announced uh, almost two weeks ago now, that, that 10% on $300 billion, that some of those products, the, the tariffs were going to be delayed until December 1st instead of September 1st. And the markets kind of reacted as, as predicted, so I decided not to do that because, hey, let's work with some of the new information we have. And I'm glad, I'm glad that I did because, you know, in the last... Well, from whatever quarter that quite a bit has been going on, and I kind of want to shift the focus of what I'm going to be talking about today. First of all, you know, in the gold market, gold had been trading north of, of 1530 actually overnight in the early mornings here in the United States, and and after that announcement, they came down. Uh, gold finished the day just above 1500. That seems to be a pretty nice support level. Silver actually bounced off of 1750, kind of found some some resistance there before coming down a fair bit on that announcement. And for the time being, it, it seems like silver and gold are in a bit of a holding pattern. Uh, I, I had hoped that that was a, a, yet another breakout to, to the upside when gold had, had broken through 1530. That remains to be seen, you know, with that news item coming out. And certainly the, the trend, I don't think, has changed a whole lot. This has been portrayed by the media as a, a peace offering by, by the Trump administration, by the U.S., to China, to... Hey, let's you know, let's talk. Let's negotiate on this trade deal, and maybe that's that's part of the intention. But I'm not entirely convinced. I think the trend remains intact, and and that trend, of course, is towards escalation. Whether it be devaluation of the yuan, which actually strengthened a fair bit on that news, or more tariffs from the Trump administration, sanctions, as well as just this a broader escalation of not the trade war, but this. What, I, what I've been calling kind of this new Cold War between the U.S. and China that extends far beyond tariffs or currency devaluation or Huawei or uh, intellectual property theft or infringement and really encompasses a, a whole host of issues that the U.S. and China are on opposite sides of, whether it be North Korea, Taiwan, Kashmir, even to some extent, um, uh, the the Belt and Road Initiative, you know, the list goes on and on of these different, uh, even Iran, the situation with Iran. In many ways, U.S. and China are on opposite sides of many of these issues. We don't find a whole lot of common ground. And this trade war and, and this currency manipulation and Huawei and the whole situation with that is all part of this broader uh, complex of issues, right? And so when I see North Korea come out and, and test some more missiles. That is absolutely linked to what's going on with China. I mean, it's no coincidence that there's a pretty good correlation between, you know, over the last couple of months, pretty good correlation between 
when the trade war is heating up or escalating further, and when North Korea is launching missiles. And and so when, when Trump acts like this isn't happening in North Korea, uh, who knows, maybe it's part of his, it's one of three things. I should say one of two things. Either A, he is is trying to belittle North Korea's existence or importance in this whole scheme of things. Let's not give them attention and maybe the problem will go away if the media doesn't pay attention to it, if it's not really escalating. And, and who knows? Maybe that strategy will work. It could totally backfire because North Korea, their their MO is to seek attention, right? The, the other possibility is that Trump is is ignoring you know these escalations by by North Korea uh, because he doesn't want a, a further escalation in this trade war or he doesn't want to deal with that as as part of this trade war part of this overall cold war you know it could be either of those it, it could be something totally different too um, it, it could be that he's trying to protect his legacy uh, the the North Korean legacy uh, let's let's try and make this look like it's Intact, uh, some sort of good diplomacy is intact with North Korea as we get closer to to the election. Whatever the case may be, th- these things are all intertwined, and I'm and I'm going off on a, on a bit of a, a rabbit trail here, talking about North Korea, because the other one that I don't think I've mentioned yet that is part of this is Hong Kong, which has been at, at the forefront of of this news cycle over this last week or two. And, and it's certainly been part of the news cycle for a number of months now. Now, of course, the, the quick background, the oversimplified background with Hong Kong is that, yes, for a very long time, it was a territory of the UK. In 1997, they officially gave up that as, as a colony of, of the UK, uh, handed it over to China with the understanding that for a full 50 years until 2047, Hong Kong would enjoy greater autonomy than, you know, other territories of, of China. That they would have their own form of governance that, yes, it'd be part of China, and China would have a certain amount of authority over it and whatnot, and certainly wouldn't be part of the UK, but that they'd have a high degree of autonomy. And for quite some time, for a number of years now, there's been worries in Hong Kong that that's not going to occur, that, that China is pushing back against that, that that China is increasingly infringing on that autonomy and sort of the the I don't know lightning rod for for all of this discontent for this dissent uh, among the, the Hong Kong population was this extradition bill that came up in Hong Kong a, a number of months ago which has since been put aside for the time being but the idea was that that China could extradite criminals for for charges. I shouldn't even use the word criminals, but people have been charged with crimes in China, on the mainland. They could be extradited out of Hong Kong. And it doesn't take a genius to, to realize why this would be such an infringement, because now you can pick any you know democracy advocate or politician or whatever, charge them with some bogus crime on the mainland, and just extradite them, because that's that would be the law. And so the, the people of Hong Kong came out in droves. I'm talking millions of people taken to the streets protest this. And those protests continue today. And increasingly, it's looking like China is going to crack down. Now, the, the question that I think is on a lot of people's minds 
first and foremost is what type of a crackdown will this be? Whether it's the PL, PLA, the People's Liberation Army, or the I think it's the PAP, the People's Armed Police, um, people are wondering, is this going to be the next Tiananmen Square? I'm talking fatalities. I'm talking brutal crackdown. And if China is daring enough to do just that, wow, this could be really a bad situation. I, I tend to think that it's going to be a little more peaceful than that and, and a lot of the more, shall I say, barbaric uh, techniques are going to occur after the fact or, or uh, behind the curtain, right? But the, but the other question that people are going to be asking is how will the U.S. and the U.K. and the Western world and, and Japan and whatnot respond to this crackdown if it indeed does happen? Direct military intervention? Eh... <laughs> I tend to be doubtful of that. But will it lead to an escalation of this trade war? Will it shift uh, the the relationship between the U.S. and China, the U.K. and China, and all of that? And I think the answer to that is, yeah, probably, right? If we're going to say that this is all part of a, a bigger uh, cold war, then what happens in Hong Kong doesn't stay in Hong Kong. What happens in Hong Kong has ramifications for this trade war. It means likely more tariffs or sanctions or... This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place. Like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Uh, actions against Huawei or other Chinese companies or nationals, which will probably mean more currency devaluation. And this could get out of hand very quickly. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up in relation to today is that what happens there, it goes back to, to many of my podcasts over this last month or two. This Chinese situation, trade war, cold war, whatever you want to call it, it's not going to be the cause for the next recession. But it's going to be the trigger, or it could be if it continues down this path. And so that's why we need to pay attention to what's going on in Hong Kong, not just because of our concerns for their freedoms, their autonomy, democracy, etc., but also because if this escalates, if China cracks down and the U.S. and Trump decide this is not okay, you can absolutely expect us to take action through economic and diplomatic means. And, and that's bad news for markets. That's great news for silver and gold because they have absolutely been rallying on this escalation of the trade war and a devaluation of the yuan. But uh, as far as the economy, the global economy, the, the odds of a, of a global recession around the corner, it, it puts those odds at basically 100%, I would say, if this escalates to that point. The other thing I wanted to talk about today is, again, totally shifting gears, but talking about some real recent events, is quantitative easing from the Federal Reserve. Now, this is something I've brought up many times in, in, in the time that my channel has existed, predicting QE during the next recession. And I'm not the only one to do it. That QE3 was not the last we've seen of QE. I'm talking money printing, monetization of debt, purchasing of, of, of various types of debt beyond just, just U.S. Treasuries. 
But the reason I'm bringing it up today is because of some recent predictions by analysts, uh, at least one analyst from Bank of America, as well as J.P. Morgan, predicting that we could see QE by the end of the year. And, and the reason for this, at least for my opinion, as well as to some extent theirs, is twofold. First of all, I'll put it this way, threefold. Okay, first of all, recession. A recession coming around the corner is going to necessitate quantitative easing, or at least that's going to be the Fed's opinion, that, that we need to, to print money, provide liquidity, buy bonds, buy debt, and maybe more. Okay, that's reason number one. Reason number two is that the Fed is going to need to monetize U.S. debt, regardless of some recent developments, which I'm going to get to in reason number three. Regardless of that, U.S. deficits are out of control. And that's not news. But what is news is that, going back to this this question that I'm always asking on this channel, not how long can this, this debt problem go on, but who is buying the debt? When that question is asked, the answer increasingly has become domestic investors here in the United States. Not foreign central banks, not foreign investors, but domestic investors and institutions, and uh, to a small extent, the U.S. government. It hasn't been the Fed either. And and the appetite for this debt is eventually going to run out, which will require extra demand unless we have... Uh, to, to not start a printing presses, to not buy that in the form of QE would put us at, at grave danger, in grave danger of a major liquidity crisis, a major stock market crash. Again, that's going to be how the Fed views us. But reason number three, the Fed is moving closer and closer to QE, is recent developments regarding the suspension of the debt ceiling. Now, what that means is that when the debt ceiling went into effect, I forget if it was reached or if it went into effect back in March of this March, April of this year, doesn't matter. The view from the Treasury was, look, Congress has to get this figured out by September, August, somewhere in that time period, or else we're going to run out of cash. So the way the Treasury does this is they have this this, uh, general account that they have at the Fed, cash, money. And, and the way that they funded this account is to issue debt. I mean, that's how the treasury gets their money, the, the extra money, unless, at least beyond the, uh, of course, the, the tax income they get. And so what they do is, is as this debt ceiling has become more and more a cyclical event, the treasury has learned, look, to, to avoid an absolutely, absolute catastrophe and, and default, by the U.S. on our obligations, we need to build up our cash balances in order to give Congress some breathing room to renew this debt ceiling suspension so that we can go on issuing debt. And so what they do is they they build up this account through issuance of debt, and what that means is that as this account gets larger and larger, they're removing liquidity from the system because to issue that debt to build up this, this bank account requires dollars. Somebody's got to buy that debt. And that's taking liquidity out of this system. Now, since that that debt ceiling basically went back into effect, or once it was reached in in March or April, they had to then start to bring down their balance sheet. They had to spend money because the the treasury has has bills to pay, just like, like everybody else. And that essentially returned liquidity to the system. They were basically buying stuff. They were returning dollars to the system without having to issue bonds, which would be you know, required dollars. It was a net 
increase in liquidity, similar to quantitative easing. But in the last couple of weeks, a deal on the debt ceiling was reached, and now the Treasury, their plan is to rebuild their general account at the Fed, rebuild this balance sheet, which means issuance of more debt and removal of liquidity from the system. And already today, another reason that I'm, I'm glad I waited to, to put off making this or, or redo this episode is today the Treasury, Treasury issued a, it was an auction for 52-week T-bills. Now, T-bills, similar concept to, to Treasuries, uh, but, but they're shorter term. I think it's from four-week to 52-week T-bills that are issued. This was a $28 billion issuance. And it was pretty poor, meaning the demand, the, the yield that these were issued at was higher than expected. Now, not by a ton. The, the tail on this auction, that's what they'd call it, was a full 2.5 basis points. But in the world of T-bills, which, believe me, I'm not well-versed in, but in the world of T-bills, that's big. That's a big deal. And what it signals is that now the Treasury is looking for all this extra, basically, buyers of debt so that they can... Uh, build up this balance sheet again, and the liquidity is just not there. People are buying these bills. It's not like they couldn't do it, but but the liquidity is not what it usually is for these types of auctions. This was one of the worst, if not the worst, issuance ever. But but the problem here is is that's twenty eight billion. The Treasury has to uh, replenish their their bank account by well over, I, I want to say well over $100 billion, right? $100 billion of liquidity. That's basically $100 billion of quantitative tightening. That's going to tighten the screws on liquidity in today's financial system. And that's reason number three that the Fed is going to have to start QE much sooner than I think many people realized. And so, you know, in the past when I talk about QE, it's something that would happen with uh, a recession or, or with some sort of funding crisis with uh, the U.S. government. But with this on top of it, I, I'm, I have a feeling that this is going to be more of a, well, we're going to start QE here because of liquidity concerns, because of, of the treasury and whatnot. But it's going to be a QE that doesn't come to an end. The Fed is going to rationalize one way or another the, the continuation of this, which is going to be totally necessary. To, to monetize the U.S. debt, again, from their perspective. <laughs> if it was me, I, I, you know, I'm more of a let-it-all-burn mentality. Uh, but, of course, that's, that's quite the opposite of how the Fed, uh, I think, feels on the matter. So, uh, of course, the alternative, I could be wrong. The alternative to this is a huge liquidity squeeze, which I think is going to happen to some extent anyways. But as far as we're concerned, silver and gold stackers, either A, they start QE, obviously a positive for silver and gold, or B, a huge liquidity crisis, which necessitates even even faster and more um, more robust response from the Fed in the form of QE and, and rate cuts, et cetera, to to offset that that uh, tight liquidity. So, anyways, thank you guys for tuning in. I know the audio on my podcast, some of them as of late, hasn't been the greatest. Part of that is just because I'm recording from a lapel mic while I'm recording or while I'm driving. It's for efficiency. I mean, it's I, I got a busy life and, and you know, it's difficult to take time away from from uh, my wife and, and daughters 
to, to do this every single day. So, uh, I'm actually sitting in my driveway right now. I just got home and my wife's looking at me. Um, she actually just gave me the middle finger jokingly, hopefully jokingly. Um, anyways, I digress. So, so this is for efficiency, but I want to make it better for you guys in the future. So, so some of my recordings are not going to be while driving, so better audio quality. But I also want to get a new audio, uh, a new mic here in the future uh, to replace this little pal mic, which hopefully will increase the, the quality as well. But in the meantime, thank you to my faithful listeners, faithful supporters for, for tuning in anyways, right? It's more about the content than quality of the, the audio, right? I hope that's the case anyways. So as always, thank you guys from the bottom of my heart for listening to this podcast, watching this video and God bless.